Please take your Bible, if you have one, and uh, turn to Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. Um, <clears throat> Mark 1, 1 through 15. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, please grab one of those black books in the pew rack in front of you. And uh, feel free to use that. The scripture is also printed on the inside cover of the bulletin there. A couple brief words as you're flipping pages. Um, uh, number one, the, the kitty corrals, as we call them, in the corners of the sanctuary are not there. We crammed as many extra chairs as we could into the sanctuary for the uh, funeral on Friday. And then we said, maybe we should leave these here till after Christmas. So uh, if you notice that this morning, that's why. So bring all your friends, your neighbors, whoever uh, might want to come with you uh, during this Advent season. Bring them along. That'd be great. Uh, secondly, as you might have noticed, we're taking a break from Isaiah, though Isaiah is quoted in today's passage like it was last week. Um, but we are taking a break so that we can look at six Christmas cards, six Christmas portraits from four different artists or four different evangelists. Every evangelist, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Every one of them had a unique personality and a unique story, portrait of Jesus' birth and incarnation. So let's see what they each teach us about Christmas. This week we look at Mark 1. Um, for reasons I think will be obvious in a few moments, I have never preached this at Advent before. So uh, with that, let's look to God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Thus ends the reading of God's word. As Isaiah says, grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So let's ask his blessing this morning as we consider his word. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, would you be with us this morning? Would you let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer? 
It's in Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. Into the Wild. That's the title of a movie that I hate. I will explain why at some point. But Into the Wild is where John went. It's where Israel went to hear his message, to reckon with their past rebellion. It's where Jesus went to obey where his people had failed, to endure, to conquer temptation so that Jesus could tame the wild. That guy in that movie I mentioned, well, he didn't exactly tame the wild. He sold all his earthly possessions because it seems he disliked his family and other people only to realize that living in the wild isn't as romantic as Walden or Thoreau made it sound. And then maybe other people are worth something. If you like that movie, I'm sorry. But this is actually more relevant to our passage than you might think. Because Jesus is going into the wild, into the wilderness, to conquer something. To make the world and the people in it new and right. And really, that's what Advent is all about. The incarnation is a daring invasion into enemy-occupied territory, part of a grand rescue mission. That's why Jesus comes to earth. Now, of course, Mark skips a lot of that, doesn't he? He skips the incarnation, the, the infiltration. He just gets straight to the rescue. Instead of a slow buildup that shows you how Jesus was born a child and yet a king, Mark plops you right into the action. And oh yes, he sprinkles hints of Jesus' full humanity, his full divinity in here along the way. Mark has been called the Go Gospel. Short, fast-paced, and one of Mark's favorite words is immediately, which you see two times in these opening 15 verses. Again, Mark doesn't show us how Jesus was born a child and yet a king, but he does show us that our king can tame the wild and make all things new, including us. Three points about that this morning. The first one is this, the call of the wild. The call of the wild, verses 2 through 8. Apologies to Jack London because I'm not sure I mean the same thing as his classic novel, but there's a call to action for God's people, and it comes from the wild, from a messenger who makes his home in the wilderness. Look with me, verses 2 and 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. This is not just from Isaiah, by the way. It's also from Malachi 3 as well. Two Old Testament quotes. One from Isaiah, one that illumines and expands upon Isaiah's prophecy. You might say, then why doesn't he say written in Isaiah and Malachi? Well, they weren't quite as exacting about their citations and footnotes back then. So this would have passed muster for the academic standards of the day. But it's not the only puzzling thing here. You'll notice we mostly skipped verse 1, which mentions the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here we are talking about Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, who's introduced in verse 4. Introduced, actually, he just appears out of nowhere this messenger who prepares a voice in the wilderness, one who makes the crooked into straight paths so that the king can come. See, that's why we start with John. Mark is telling us that the gospel era really begins with John. One commentator calls John's appearance in the wilderness 
the most important event in the life of Israel for more than 300 years. The last 300 years, actually it's more like 400 years, were kind of quiet. There was the Maccabean revolt, if you're familiar with the intertestamental times, but there was no prophetic word. The last prophet, Malachi, was about 400 years before. And now, again, there's this prophet who just appears like Elijah. If you look at 1 Kings 17.1, you'll understand what I mean. But he's, he's here and he's baptizing in the wilderness. Wilderness, the place of Israel's trial and testing, which of course they failed. Call of the wild. It's a call to come and face their sin and their failure so that they can find healing, so that they can realize their need of healing. In the wilderness, it is not just the place of trial and testing. It's also the home of many prophets before. Like them, John is proclaiming, that word is often translated preaching, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, calling his audience to realize their need for a new heart, a new purpose, a complete return to God, which would result in forgiveness of sins by God. Now, is that works righteousness? Do this so that you can be saved. No, it's not. And how would that forgiveness happen? What are the mechanics of it? Well, maybe John spelled it out for them, but Mark doesn't do that. Not yet. Not for at least a few more verses. But something, maybe the mystery of it all, something about John drew a crowd. Look at verse 5. In all of the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. It's like Israel knew they needed the change that this wild man was calling for. Confessing their sins, they submit to baptism. And why? Why did they do this? As Jesus would later say, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? A man dressed in soft clothing, fancy clothing in other words? Well, no, that wasn't it. Verse 6 now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. I never seriously considered changing my usual wardrobe for Sunday morning, but could have done that. He wore wild clothes. He ate wild food. His preaching, maybe wild isn't quite the right word, but bold. Yes, it was bold. Verse 7 says, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John would later say, I am not the Christ. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's, of course, who John is referring to now, one who is mightier, one who is the Son of God. You notice Mark may not tell us about the virgin conception, but he, he seems to assume it. He seems to assume the divinity of Jesus. Keep in mind, Mark wrote to a largely Gentile audience, probably a Roman one. And so they weren't equated with the, the Old Testament and its prophecies. So uh, he quotes the Old Testament, things like Isaiah 7, the virgin shall conceive. He quotes that less often than the other evangelists. Mark says one mightier is coming. If you think my demands are great, just wait till you meet him. Everything about him will be greater. Verse 8, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
course, that happens on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church. But something greater is coming. Someone greater is coming. That's the whole point of John's ministry. Someone greater is coming. The whole point is to point others to Jesus. My friends, do we need that reminder that we are not the Christ, that the point is pointing others to Jesus? Put it another way, are we content when a fellow Christian doesn't need our help, our mentoring, our guidance, because they've realized that the, the, they found the sufficiency of Christ, that he is sufficient for all that they need? Does that make our joy complete or do we... Do we feel that it kind of crushes our ego a bit that they don't need us anymore? John pointed others to Jesus, and he did it by calling them out to the wilderness. At least one author thinks this implies the need, the beginning of a second exodus. See, the wilderness wanderings, they were the result of the first exodus, freedom from the house of slavery. The second exodus, of course, would show Israel that they needed freedom from sin much more than they needed freedom from from Roman occupiers, an unjust government. Do we still need to hear that call, a call to come out from the wild world around us, a call to repentance, turning from sin, turning to our Savior, turning from the ways of the world, turning instead to faith in God's provision? Do we need to come out and find the God who is working a new exodus, a new salvation, a new and greater deliverance from sin. Makes me think of an old hymn. Out of my bondage, sorrow, and night, Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come. Skipping ahead, out of my wanting and into thy wealth, out of my sin and into thyself, Jesus, I come to thee. The call of the wild. It's called to realize our need, to realize our need of repentance and redemption. A call to come to the wilderness so that we might come out of the wildness that's all around us. But next, we see that the wild world is not the one that's in control. We see, secondly, the tamer of the wild, the tamer of the wild in verses 9 through 15. Now, remember the incarnation. What is it? It's a daring rescue mission, the start of a rescue mission, a daring invasion into enemy controlled territory. The wild, untamed world, however, will not win because there's one who has tamed the wild. Let me say one thing as well. To the extent that it's enemy controlled territory, it's only because God allows the enemy to control that territory. But nonetheless, we have met John, the resident of the wilderness. Let's meet his more famous cousin now, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Very short account, like most stories that Mark tells, but it's packed with action, of course. Keep going, verse 10. And when he came up out of the water immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. We've got a Trinitarian baptism. The son is here. The spirit is hovering over the waters and the father speaks. There are creation echoes in all of this. Not because Jesus is created. Not because Jesus becomes the son of God at this point. No, not that. No, he was already the son of God. He was 
not created. There never was a time when the sun was not. And one of the men who fought to uphold that truth was a guy named St. Nicholas. No, why are there creation echoes here? Because the son who was with the father before the beginning, he is the agent of new creation. And his work is about to be unleashed upon the world. His divinity as God's son is confirmed by the father's voice from heaven. There are hints of his humanity in various places here as well. Among them, why does Jesus need to get baptized? Did Jesus need baptism? Did he need to repent of his sin? No. But Matthew 3 tells us Jesus did this, quote, to fulfill all righteousness, to do everything that was required of God's people so that he could identify as one of God's people because Jesus is to be our substitute. And he understood that long before Easter. Someone said, like Moses, he identifies with the plight of his people. He doesn't enjoy the fruits of his privileged position. In other words, Jesus doesn't just use the superpowers of divinity to conquer sin and Satan. He submits himself to all the requirements that Israel faced. All of the things they failed to do, he is resolved to do and obey and succeed. So that the one who is fully human, fully God and fully human, he can be tempted in every way that they were and yet without sin. That's what's going on here. Jesus' obedience. It's written all over the New Testament. But it also seems to be at least implied in the Father's statement, with you I am well pleased. If you look at all of verse 11, that quote, uh, the Father's words, probably a combination of Psalm 2 verse 7 and Isaiah 42 1. But that obedience, <clears throat> we tend to think that obedience brings rewards. Indeed, I've said that before. Obedience brings blessing. Obedience is sometimes its own reward. But notice here, obedience doesn't immediately lead to glory. Where does it lead? It leads to temptation. Verse 12, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And then you see what happens next. Immediately again, it's one of Mark's favorite words. Jesus is often in the gospel of Mark immediately bouncing from place to place. That word immediately, it's used 51 times in the entire New Testament. Over 80% of those are in the Gospel of Mark. Two of them in this passage that we read. Immediately, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, like Israel before him. And it's not an accident. It says the Spirit drove him there to this, quote, abode of devils and unclean beasts. Why send him here? One, because part of his mission is to obey where his people failed. He must endure. He must obey during temptation. And secondly, because this would speak to later generations who endured something similar. Like first century converts in the 50s and 60s. The original readers of Mark's gospel who faced baptism. Then the presence of the Holy Spirit. Then immediate testing. Often severe testing, capital P, persecution. It's very strange, but the presence of testing, temptation, even the presence of Satan. These may be strange signs of spiritual success, of doing the right thing. But don't ever pray for them. 
pray for the opposite. Jesus conquered temptation so that you can pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Years later, Paul would write, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But Mark's readers knew it long before then. And we, many years later, we're Christians if we've trusted in Christ, Christ followers, and if our Lord suffered, then why would we not expect to suffer as well? And of course, the blessing in all of this is that Christ has spared us from the worst suffering. Because he took it for us. Because he obeyed. Because he overcame temptation. You'll notice Mark doesn't say much about that, right? Jesus was tempted. and He overcame it. But Jesus tamed the wild. He overcame temptation for 40 days and forever. Despite wild beasts, despite Satan. Said earlier, we need repentance, we need redemption. True. But we also need one who can accomplish that redemption, don't we? One who understands this wild world and who can also overcome it. Who can tame it. Who can obey where no one else can who can obey in the wilderness and signal the beginning of the second and greater exodus or deliverance. The call of the wild is not a call to try harder. It's a call to look to one who is better, who is more mighty, who is more holy, who is more loving. It's a call to change your heart and life by looking to a savior who has already tamed the wild. And that leads to our third point this morning, the good news for a wild world, the good news for a wild world. We'll look at the beginning and the end, verse one, as well as verses 14 and 15. We skip verse one for the most part, <clears throat> the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, the gospel. Mark's audience, likely Roman Gentiles, they would have known what this word meant. It was a quote, an historical event which introduces a new situation for the world. The angel in the Genesis-style genealogy of Matthew also tells you that, that something new is coming on the scene. So do the angels in the, the, that appear to the shepherds in Luke. They tell you that. So does the Genesis echo in the opening words of John. Something new is coming. Notice how Mark does this. Mark doesn't show us a manger or the wise men. Mark skips past it all and he shows you Jesus in action as well as this brief picture of his opening act, John the baptizer. But all of the gospel writers, all of them have a way of showing you Jesus ushers in something new. And part of what makes it new is this fuller revelation of the gospel. And yes, a gospel, gospel means historical events, something new. But you're perhaps familiar with a much simpler definition of gospel, good news. Good news of a savior who tamed the wild world. A savior who can tame our wild hearts, who can cause us to rest in him and trust in him. A savior who is on the move for our sake. Notice after his announcement by John, after the time of preparation, the baptism, the father's approving word, the temptation. After that, Mark shows us Jesus on the move once again. He'll stay on the move for several chapters. Skip ahead to verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee 
proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. John's arrest, that's a pretty major story. But Mark just, oh, by the ways it, just moves past it to get the bigger news because Jesus is in town and he's proclaiming, he's preaching the gospel of God, the gospel from God, the good news from God. And what else did Jesus say? He said, the time is fulfilled. God's people had waited a long time for such a great salvation. Remember, this is John's appearing, the biggest event in 300, 400 years, and they'd been waiting even longer than that. And even though they'd been waiting that long, when they saw it, many of them missed it. Need to remember that. Beware of that. <laughs> they had waited a long time, and still, when it came, they missed it. But the waiting, as someone has said, is the hardest part. That's true, but the biggest wait is over. See, even as we await Christ's second coming, the biggest news has already come. The story that began all the way back in Genesis 1, the redeemer, the snake crusher that was teased in Genesis 3. He's here. He has come. The happy ending has already been secured. So the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Did they understand what that meant? Maybe, maybe not. The kingdom, the rule and reign of God, a kingdom, he would say, that is not of this world, doesn't look quite the same as an earthly kingdom, does it? He rules and reigns in the hearts of his people so that they submit to his lordship, that they show forth good deeds, they act as salt and light in the world around them. He's saying that the kingdom is already here or that it's just around the corner. And so repent and believe in the gospel. Turn from your old way of life and believe in the good news. Turn from rebellion, forging your own path, and believe in the good news that Jesus has a better path and a trail that he has already blazed. Turn from self-reliance, thinking that you can do it all yourself. You can't, and God knows that, which is why he sent Jesus to die for your sins, to obey where you failed, to proclaim the good news that he did what you couldn't. Turn, he says. Repent, turn from whatever gets in the way of Jesus, from whatever, from whatever way you run away from Jesus. Stop doing it, he says. Believe in the gospel. Christ has entered into the wilderness. He has tamed the wilderness. He has done all that he promised. And he calls us to repent as he announces his victory, as he calls us to believe. Verses 14 and 15, you'll see that Jesus preaches the good news and he calls us to believe. And then he spends the rest of the gospel, the rest of Mark's account, accomplishing that gospel, accomplishing that good news, securing that salvation. He goes immediately to the next step in his mission until he gets to the crowning moment of the gospel, the cross. Immediately, he does something immediately, immediately, over and over again. But fun fact about Mark and all of those immediately's, most of them, 34 out of 41, are in the first nine chapters of his gospel. There's 16 chapters in Mark. 34 out of 41 in basically the first half. And what happens after that? Well, he slows down. 
after chapter 9, once he comes to Jerusalem, the final week of his life is what the rest of Mark's gospel is about. So that we see what all the previous hustle and bustle was about. This is what Jesus has been racing to accomplish. He set his face like a flint to Jerusalem. And once he got there, once he gets there, we see the good news unfold in slow motion. The immediately's fizzle out. And it's a slow and steady march of obedience. The God man, fully God, fully man, perfectly obedient, even to the point of death, death on a cross. Did Mark forget the nativity scene? No. He knew that all the truths of the nativity would come out in his story. He's writing to the Greeks, the Romans, and they need to see a conquering king. And that's what Mark shows them in all of his humanity, all of his authority, all of his power. That baby that Mark never shows us. That baby who was born a child and yet a king. He would grow up. He would live a perfect life. A life that was laser focused on the cross. The place where the good news was solidified. What we see in Mark's gospel is that our king did not despise the cross. Our king died for us. Our king suffered. Our king rose again because death could not hold him. Our king guarantees that we will rise again through faith in him. Our king has conquered this fallen, wild world. And he is making all things new as we await the return of the king. The king who calls us to repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Oh, heavenly father, you are good and what you do is good. We thank you for all your goodness to us. We thank you for the good news we have in the gospel. The announcement of glad tidings. The announcement of earth-shaking, life-changing news. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Would you help us now to taste and see that you are good. We pray all this in Jesus' great name. Amen.